Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, November 4th, 2010, and our special guest tonight is Stephen Farr, the author of Teaching as Leadership. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on. The Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. If you need to turn your sound up, go ahead and do so with the slider button down at the bottom. I've turned my sound down because Stephen's on the telephone bridge, so his sound comes in a little bit lower. And so it's probably um, good for you to turn your system volume up or the, the slider up. And you may want to look to turn your system volume up as well. So Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central, my employer, and the um, Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate. The project I work on is um, the Learn Central Social Network for Educators. It is free and has Illuminate baked in. We hope that it provides you with some uh, help and services if you're an educator. Uh, for October and November, Future of Education is sponsored in part by Redo from Microsoft Bing. And thanks to them for keeping my book budget solvent. Coming up November 15th to 19th and consuming every waking moment for me is our free global education conference. Uh, every day it gets more and more exciting. Uh, right now I think we've got about 50 keynote addresses, 350 sessions. We're uploading uh, about 50 sessions in Spanish tonight, or at least the links to those, the descriptions of those sessions. That's November 15th to 19th. It is all free. Uh, it is worldwide, and it should just be amazing. So go to globaleducationconference.com. Of the 35, 34, 35 different time zones around the world based on daylight savings time and traditional time zones, we have a calendar up for each one. So no matter where you are in the world, you should be able to, to see exactly when the sessions are starting. Coming up after Global Education Conference, or Global EdCon, on November 23rd, Matt Levinson talks to us about his book, From Fear to Facebook. Then we're going to talk to Philip Schlechte on Leading for Learning. Uh, Kieran Egan comes on, Julie Young, Deborah Meyer, Alfie Cohn, Will Richardson, Barnett Berry, Sandy Hirsch, Karen Hume. Lots more coming up. We hope that you'll join us. If you've missed the session, they are all recorded, and they're up at futureofeducation.com. We talked earlier this week to Vicki Abellis about her movie, Race to Nowhere. Clarence Fisher before that, Diane Ravitch, Jim Burke. Lots of fun people. Hopefully there's a name in there that rings a bell for you and somebody you want to hear, and you can go back and listen to the recordings. Those recordings are in full Illuminate uh, versions, and they're also in .mp3 files and available as a podcast stream. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we hope that you will participate actively. There are a variety of ways to do so. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see the little smiley face and the clapping hand. I'm clicking on those now. And as you do so, they'll show up next to your name. There's a hand with a green up arrow. When we go to Q&A, you can use that to raise your hand and ask a question. And it's a chance for you to talk directly to Stephen. And, um, and we'll give you the microphone to do so. If you think you'd like to do that, be sure to go up to Tools Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone is working. Okay, now you've got the chat uh, area just below the participant window. I like to open the chat up, and I'll show you how I do that. I go up to View Layouts, and I switch to the Wide Layout. And that makes it a lot easier to see the chat as it comes up. You are most welcome to put links in there or to comment on what's going on. Try to keep those on topic. If they get off topic, it can be distracting, especially to uh, someone who hasn't been in this environment before. It does, it does look as though you can send a completely private message to someone else in the system. Uh, none of the other participants will see those messages, but Stephen and I do. 
So there's nothing entirely private and you need to know that. Okay, we're now going to let you tell us where you're participating or listening from. To the left of the map, you'll see a wand with a red star at the end. Click on that and then click on the map. Those of you who are familiar with this know you can shout out in the chat as well. Time and temperature, it looks like we have New Zealand. A US-centric crowd, which doesn't surprise me, Stephen, given uh, Teach for America. Uh, this looks like we have China and New Zealand. But this is an American topic, I think, uh, although you're going to tell us, I'm sure, about Teach for All. Okay, so um, Stephen, I'm going to preface uh, tonight's session by letting you know that we've had a couple of guests on the show who uh, will represent a little bit of a different story about Teach for America. Uh, Linda Darling-Hammond came on, Diane Ravage came on. My goal tonight is to let you tell your story. Uh, we'll, we'll do that in as much in full as we can. There are some things I want to ask you about based on those previous interviews, and I actually think I've had an epiphany. When we get to the right moment, I'm hoping you'll let me tell you how I think that um, we can resolve the Teach for America versus Diane Ravage, Linda Darling-Hammond dilemma. Uh, so that will be fun to do. But can we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thank you. Um, well, my name is Stephen Farr. I, I am Chief Knowledge Officer at Teach for America. I, I began my career in education 18 years ago as a Teach for America Corps member. I was assigned to teach in the third poorest county in the United States in the Rio Grande Valley along the Texas-Mexican border and taught high school English and ESL uh, in, in Donna, Texas to a population of students living in poverty, many of them migrant students. Um, I, I had the transformational experience that comes from teaching and working hard to transform students' lives, and I have, have never really gotten out of the sector. I, I, after teaching for two years, I went to law school at Yale where I studied education equity and wrote on education equity issues and was teaching at Georgetown civil rights and disabilities issues before coming back to Teach for America as Vice President of Training and Support in 2001. In the last nine years at Teach for America, we've, we've grown and divided and split in a million different ways, but I have, my primary focus has been on studying the, the distinguishing actions and methods of our dramatically effective teachers as contrasted with our moderately effective teachers trying to figure out what about what those teachers are doing differently should be informing our recruitment selection, training, and support of teachers so that we can fulfill our mission of putting children growing up in low-income communities on a trajectory to have all the sort of opportunities and choices that are just essentially assumed children in higher income communities. So you sort of represent the best story or one of the great stories of Teach for America, you know, having, having gone through the program and then staying in education and playing a specific role. Am I right if I were to summarize the basic vision as low-income students are capable of performing, teaching makes a huge difference, and we're identifying some things that we think really make an impact on how effective teachers are?
Yeah, I, I think that's, that is the story of my particular work. If it's okay, I'd love to couch it slightly more broadly in, in terms of the theory of change of the organization. Um, we, you know, I, I, think, I think most people understand that, that Teach for America is recruiting and selecting top college graduates and training and supporting them to have an impact to close the achievement gap for their students in low-income communities around the country immediately in their first and second years. We ask for a two-year commitment and we assign you to a rural or, or urban area. Um, I think maybe it's sort of less understood that that's only half of, and as we think about it, that's only half of our theory of change. In what, what, we, what we are aiming to do is build an unstoppable movement of leaders in all sectors of society, in education for sure, but also people outside of education who have had the experience of seeing firsthand the potential of children in low-income communities and who are lifelong, uncompromising agitators for changing the system from the current status of what I frankly think is our greatest injustice as a nation, the fact that if you tell me a child's zip code, you know, with somewhere between 90 and 95% certainty, I can tell you whether that child is going to college. And, and the fact that socioeconomic status is the best predictor of success, we believe is an affront to our most fundamental ideals as a nation. And so we are, we are training and supporting teachers, but we are in the long term bringing people to the sector who may decide to stay in the classroom or may decide to go. And we celebrate both of those decisions because we know that our folks tend to be lifelong advocates for this very important issue. And we're betting on who will be leaders 10, 20 years down their career. So we're certainly seeing a lot of discussion about education right now. There was Education Nation. There are the Waiting for Superman and Race to Nowhere movies. Um, is this a unique moment in our history as a country, do you think? Or is this just one of another set of waves of education reform discussions? I, I think it's a unique moment. I think that at some level, on the one hand, there is so much turmoil, and I think it's all it's all very difficult. Um, I I think that we're you know when we look at when we look back 50 years from now at where we are in terms of decades of, of trends, honestly, I think that we are we are experiencing the turmoil of adjusting education to an, an, an outcomes mindset, in essence. I think that you know we have we have been quite process oriented in it for education a long for a long time. There is new, as frustrating and incomplete as it is, more and more, and I, I think it's fair to say, more and more rigorous data about what is and is not working in terms of actual student achievement and student growth is coming to bear. And I think we, as a, as a sector, are trying to deal with that, sort of how I'm making sense of that in my mind. Simultaneously, the reason I feel so optimistic about this current moment is I just think we have, 
we have new proof points about the possibility of success in low-income communities that are just unprecedented. You know, 20 years ago, the movie Stand and Deliver was made not because Jaime Escalante's kids passed the AP test, but because everyone assumed he cheated. It was, it was, our national ideology was that this cannot happen. That was the assumption. And today, I, I just think we have hundreds. I'm not talking about necessarily within Teach for America, although also within Teach for America. We have many examples of teachers who are overcoming the challenges of poverty with education. Ten years ago, we could count on one hand, I think, schools and low-income communities that were taking an entire campus full of students and putting them on a trajectory to have the option of college. And today, there are hundreds of those schools. And you know, I think just five years ago, if, if any of us, I would imagine, had said, what are the most, the most disastrous and intractable districts on my list, anyway, would have been places like New York and Baltimore and DC and New Orleans. All places, while far, far from successful, have the arrows moving in the right direction for the first time in a long, long time. And, and so for, for all the political and I think healthy debate about what's happening and where we're going, I, I'm spending a lot of time smiling about the fact that we can, just, we can no longer say that this isn't possible. And I think that we can no longer say that when it is possible, it, when it does happen, it's somehow magical or some kind of outlier. The, the, the number of proof points is just increasing too quickly. So I remember when uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey was a really popular business book. And I'm sure it's still popular, but when it was sort of a, the big deal. And one of the criticisms that I remember hearing about the book was that it took the burden off of the company and it placed it squarely on the individual employee, the idea that the employee had to become sort of the perfect employee. Do you get that same response to the book uh, with the title Teaching as Leadership, the Highly Effective Teacher's Guide to Closing the Achievement Gap? Do people ask you? or challenge the idea that this is the teacher's role? And how do you respond? People, I mean, there are you know, all kinds of reactions to this. Let, let me just start by saying just very briefly what this book is. We, what we have done here is, is look carefully at what teachers who are having dramatic impact in students' lives in, ter in terms of catching them up. These are, these are teachers whose students are showing up two, three, four years behind, but ending the year on grade level or ahead. Or teachers whose students come in on a path to, you know, to remedial math in junior high, and yet the students leaving this classroom are ending up in advanced placement math when they get to high school. These, these trajectory changing teachers, we've been asking what they're doing differently. And what we're seeing is that what those teachers are doing differently is bringing the same principles of leadership, namely big goal setting and intense focus on in investing students, in essence motivational theory, backwards planning, things that are not, I think, surprising to most of us. But those are the distinguishing, the, the distinguishing principles in those classrooms. Now, when, when people hear that, 
I mean, where this does one implication of these studies, I think, is that the teacher has incredible opportunity to have life-changing impact in children's lives. And sadly and tragically, our studies are often of teachers who are working in pretty dysfunctional settings where they are not getting the support that teachers should have, and yet they are still getting these results. I do not think it's inconsistent to say it is possible for teachers to have this impact and to say we should not have a system that depends on teachers to shoulder the burden of what it takes to have that impact all on their own. Um, but I think that these teachers in this sort of tragic laboratory of success in these dysfunctional settings are showing us what students need to 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 earn and experience that, that trajectory change. So I, at some level, I just feel like when I, when I have the opportunity to go into some highly functional educational settings, what I see is students who are experiencing all of the things that are mapped out in this book, but they, those, the burden of providing those, that investment and those goals and the backwards planning and the Sort of particular approach to implementation of classroom, all of that is shared across the campus instead of on a particular teacher's shoulders. And I think that's the way it should be. Um, the, the critique that I am, I guess, less patient with, I think some people hear the statement, teachers have the potential to have a massive impact in students' lives as the same thing as teachers are the reason that children are behind in the first place. I don't, I don't think those are the same thing at all. I, we, the dynamics of the achievement gap and poverty and all the burdens that these children are bringing to the schoolhouse door are obviously hugely complex. And there are many reasons that students are behind and have to struggle so hard to make the same progress kids would in other communities. But the fact that that's all very complex doesn't change the fact that we are seeing some exceptional teachers who are, you know, this is not magic, they are, they are bringing particular strategies, distinguishing strategies to the classroom, are overcoming all of those challenges. And that, that I think is a very optimistic finding, very hopeful finding. So I want you to drill down on the six pillars of teaching as leadership. Uh, but I do want to ask a quick question before we do so. So you're, you send teachers to a lot of different schools. You're sending a fair number of teachers, although in the bigger scheme it's it doesn't seem like that many, but it is a lot of teachers. Do you find that there are particular school environments that they go to that are more conducive to their being able to have that success? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't hear you said we're sending a fair amount of teachers to what schools? Oh, you're sending teachers to schools all over the country. Are there certain learning cultures right. or school cultures that tend to provide the opportunity for teachers to do it, for those teachers to do a better job than others. You know, I I think I would say of course, but but I'm answering this only barely anecdotally and not not so empirically. Um, we we do have, especially in recent years, a few more placements in more supportive and functional settings. Um, both in traditional and in some charter schools. But 
most of our teachers have, because this is you know this is our mission, are going into much less functional and supportive settings. So I don't have I don't have tons of our studies of teachers have not looked at those differences in context. That said, what I do see quite often, you know, it's really easy to make overgeneralizations here, but you know, here's an example. I was I was studying some teachers this spring who whose students, because they were in that teacher's classroom, despite the fact that the schools were not a very supportive place, those students were getting on a different path. They were becoming competitive for magnet schools when they left there. They, their lives were going to have changed. And those teachers were looking around to move to schools where they could still have an impact with children in low-income communities. But as one of them said to me, I want to be swimming downstream with everyone around me instead of upstream against everyone, ever, all the policies around me. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I, there's schools that are well known, you know, some of the best kept schools, but th there are many traditional schools. There's a school I recently visited in New York um, called Wheels. It's a, a traditional public school where we, some of our alumni are, are teaching, and it is, you know, it is a wonderfully supportive place, and what I what I see is people working just as hard, but it seems much more sustainable. And I think that's where people are able to make careers when those school leaders are are creating a culture and uh, systems around the teacher to make to allow them to do what's necessary to have this this impact as a team instead of individually. Well, this is why I think that your your message isn't necessarily as um, opposed to Diane Ravitch or Linda Darling-Hammond as people assume. Because I think what you're doing is brilliant. Uh, I may not agree with every principle there, but I really think that it's significant. And you're learning a tremendous amount about those teaching skills. And uh, we'll get to that moment where I think that they really fit together. But I think you. You're, it hasn't been your mission to put them into highly functional schools, and so that's not necessarily where you're going to have learned specific lessons. Well, why don't you tell us about the six pillars? And I know we, you know, we're, this hour always is much less time than we think it's going to be, but give us a sense of what you really think that you've learned. Okay. Um, yeah, and there's. Well, let me let me do this somewhat narratively. I, I started to get on the kick of. Of, of stories. Let me t let me tell you about, and there are slides here, Steve. But we can just, if, if questions come up, I'll come to those. Thank you for putting them up there. But let me just share the sort of experience that we're 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 talking about here. So, in the spring, I heard about a teacher in Atlanta. This teacher is named Maurice Thomas. He's teaching in one of these massive urban Atlanta high schools that, like so many high schools now, has four different names on different wings because it's been superficially, frankly, split into small schools. Um, and it's not, you know, when you walk around this high school, it just was not a warm learning environment by any stretch. There's kids where they're not supposed to be. There's dim light. It looks like a movie set. Yet what I heard about this teacher was he was having this incredible impact as a US history 11th grade teacher. I went into this teacher's room, and uh, First thing I saw was that here was a group of students in a ring, 
and the, the, on this day, they were they, they had primary sources in front of them, and were just working on discussions from their essays. They were actually discussing how Reverend Martin Luther King would have written the letter from Birmingham Jail differently if it had been written today. But on the wall were two posters, and one said, "We will all I don't remember get some score on the Georgia some some kind of assessments." That was a big goal. And another poster said, "Our bigger goal." All of us will be accepted to a college or university, and it said the lucky ones to Wisconsin. This guy was a, a Wisconsin alum. Um, when I saw that, I thought, "This is a this is a pattern. Our most effective teachers always at the beginning of the year are setting an ambitious vision of where students will be at the end of the year. And yet, when we have focus groups with our moderately effective teachers, we hear things like." You know, I just want my kids to learn as much as they can each and every day. Um, obviously, you can have a poster on the wall that cannot mean much. But when I asked Maurice, Look, tell me about this this pretty audacious goal. You've got students here in this Atlanta school who are not on track to college, and that you're saying they will all be accepted to college. And here, and this isn't exactly word for word, but what he said, this is the pattern we see exactly. He said, you know, Stephen, when when I set that goal and we decided that's what we were going to do, it changed everything. I realized that preparing my students for bubbling in multiple choice tests was not preparing them for success in college. So I moved to primary sources and essays and I'm teaching writing and history. I realized that all of my kids were automatically put into ROTC and all they do in ROTC is play cards and watch movies. And we're just not going to get there if we're spending time like that. So I convinced the principal to change their schedules, and we doubled up on English and math. I realized that my kids had—they didn't know what the ACT and the SAT was. So I have ACT training before school and SAT training after school. I realized my kids' families don't know how to navigate financial aid. So on Friday morning, I bring donuts, and we have town meetings where families bring the forms, and I help them. He takes boys on college visits one month, girls on the next month. Point is. Just like a leader in any challenging context, by creating this ambitious vision, it changed the urgency and focus and alignment of work in his classroom. And we see that over and over and over from K through 12. You know, the first grade teacher who is this this happens to be another Atlanta teacher I saw whispering to her first graders who are obsessed with the third graders upstairs, their older siblings, and you know. By the end of the year, we are going to read, write, and do math like third graders. And those kids got excited. This this pattern of setting big goals and, and using those to invest and drive hard work is one non-negotiable that we see among these teachers. I won't go through all of these, but just very quickly a second one just to get a sense of how the, this pattern, these patterns are playing out. Um, another of these patterns we call investing students and families, and that is Again, this is all inductive and iterative, and we keep looking for these hypotheses. But we do not find a teacher in our context whose kids are making multiple years of progress and getting on different paths, who isn't putting as much energy into investing their students and leading their, changing their students' mindsets to believe they can and want to succeed. They put as much energy there. They think of that as as big a project as classroom management. Or instructional strategies. Uh, there was there was one teacher in particular. This was now eight years ago. Who just when I was in her class and saw I saw interactions between students 
that I don't think anyone would believe. This was a class where a fifth grade girl, when I asked, crouched down, she was doing independent work, and I asked her if she could just tell me what she was learning. She said to me, can you ask me later? I'm kind of busy. She just, she did not have time for me because she was so invested in the work. When we started studying that teacher, she said, you teach for America people, keep telling me, I've got, you know, I've got to get my classroom management, my rules and consequences, and you're right. I've got to get the instructional strategies, you're right. But my kids do not believe hard work correlates with success. They have mislearned that those are not related. They think there's just smart kids and dumb kids, and that's the way the world is. So I have spent months changing that mindset. And there's a whole bunch of strategies that teachers are using this, but all of our teachers getting great results are affecting the students' mindsets and taking on that, that fixed and malleable intelligence as the, you know, the experts, Dweck and Stipec and others would call it. And so we, in these studies, we have been, I could go through others, but we've been looking at these consistent principles and then breaking them down into specific teacher actions. And um, if, if there's time on here, I'd love to show you, in, in essence, a, we have developed a rubric based on what our most effective teachers are doing. And that's online now. You imagine a rubric online where you can click on any cell of the rubric and watch annotated videos of a teacher performing that action at that level of proficiency. You know, and there's, there's a meta voice saying, notice how the teacher is doing this but not this. That's why this is a beginning proficient example of checking for understanding and not an advanced proficient. In order to be better, this model would look like this. That's, that's what we're trying to build, working backwards from our most effective teachers. Okay, so I, you know, I, I'm not the first person to look at this, but I will tell you that it's been fun for me, having done all of these interviews, to, to feel as though there was a kind of a melding here of ideas. Because I read today many of the criticisms of Teach for America on the website and in some of the books I have. And what was intriguing to me was, I don't think I heard any criticism of these uh, leadership pillars for uh, or the or the teacher characteristics, uh, and that led me to some very interesting conclusions. One of which was that um, that I think there's some acknowledgement that you're doing a really good job, but the concerns are that um, number one, there's not enough uh, time for training, so. That sort of was interesting, ironic to me, right? You know, uh, doing a good job, but need more, more training time. And the other was that the students aren't getting paid a high enough dollar amount to stick in the program. But the top students apply. You have, you know, you have a really incredibly competitive pool. It's a highly desired program, and it sounds to me that rather than being in conflict with some of these other theories, that this is actually very complementary. Uh, is am I? Preaching to the choir, or you know, is this some is this a message that you find that that uh, people understand? Um, you know, I, I I'm the son of a professor in a school of education. Um, these are these are long term dinner time conversations for me, and I I recognize and appreciate that people. You know, I, I think there are critiques of Teach for America that are fair and critiques that are not fair, frankly. I would ask that we start by asking how effective are our teachers and that we, everyone who's asking that is asking how effective are their own teachers. And um, you know, our, I, I think that that has to start with us. 
me, my team, all of us, our teachers are not as effective as we want them to be. We, we, we have a lot of work to do. And at the same time, our, our teachers are, are by the most rigorous external studies. And they're, you know, I think Teacher America is probably the most studied teacher preparation program in the country. Um, there's a wide range of methodological rigor in that, some of them not looking at value-added data, some of them not having random application of assignment of students. The more rigorous the study, the better our, our, our teachers prove to be in terms of actual student learning. And I, you know, I take some, some comfort for that because I, I think that's what we should be judged on, not the number of hours of training, although we get a lot of hours of training. And I do think people generally underestimate the amount of training and support that comes from being in, in our core. Yes, our teachers start with a summer of training in teaching in summer school, but their, in their entire first two years of teaching, we have regional staff and coaches and workshops. We are surrounding them with layers of support and development. And you know, I, I actually see movement in the education sector toward that model. I, I really believe that the wall between pre-service and in-service development and learning as a teacher has to break down. You know, what, what we have learned is that teaching Experiential learning is how teachers develop, and what we need to do is give teachers support to reflect on what they're doing well and less well, and that we can accelerate teachers' path to effectiveness much more quickly that way than by having them sit in a class, having them watch another video, although all of that is useful. So, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of critiques of Teach for America for sure, and I think I'm probably familiar with most of them. I I am proud that we have we have brought we have placed twenty something thousand teachers in low income communities. Uh, the huge, almost none of whom were education majors when they started, and the vast majority of whom are still in the sector. And those who are not in the sector. Are so many of them are working toward the issues that are, at the, you know, issues of poverty and social issues that are affecting our schools. And I, you know, I think that's the long-term vision. And, and the bottom line is, it only works if we are effective as teachers. So we, we have to get that right, and we have to get better. But I, but I think we're we're on our way. So aside from the push for longer school hours, which was the one thing that I, I, I didn't fully agree with, if you take what you've done and you add, uh, like in Singapore, you know, um, stipends and free education for those top students who go into the program, it seems like you're very close to the kind of concerted, uh, really supportive models for high quality teaching that you would find in Singapore or in Finland. But 20,000 teachers out of 4 million clearly um, means that your influence, while really positive, is somewhat limited. So have you thought about kind of the larger policy issues that might create larger adoption of the kinds of success that you're seeing? Uh, 
I mean, there there are I have colleagues who are thinking about those policy issues, and we get asked to be in those those conversations. But but let me come back to our our theory of change, which is that we need leaders in classrooms, on schools, in districts, in state houses, and frankly, on school boards, in businesses, as lawyers and doctors who recognize that this is one, a absolutely tragic injustice, and two, is a solvable problem. And, and that is where I think our influence is going to be. You're right. 20,000, you know, we need millions of teachers to have a transformational impact on students to, to achieve educational equity. That is not going to happen on the backs of individual heroic teachers. We are not going to go out and find 3 million teachers to act as the most effective of the teachers that I've studied are acting. What we can do and what is happening, I don't know the latest numbers, but there are maybe six or 700 principals across the country of schools and low-income communities who got their start in Teach for America teaching children in low-income communities. And those leaders are bringing to their campuses uncompromising high expectations for students in low-income communities. They know that success is possible. They know that teachers need to be wrapped in and support and feel part of the team. And they're making it sustainable. This, this is a story of some of the most effective charter schools in the country in low-income communities and some of the most effective traditional schools uh, and, you know, not all of them, of course, but a number of them are led by our our alumni who got their start teaching in low-income communities. And I, and I think that, in the long term, is going to move the needle. So, as an alum of a year-long exchange program in high school, where I went and lived in another country, I lived in Brazil. I really appreciate that particular methodology because I think it, it does have long-term impact. I, you know, again, you've had these conversations many, many times over probably many, many dinner tables. You know, for me, kind of an intriguing piece of this was I kept looking in the book for if you're going to, if these are people who are going to influence policy, there wasn't, to, to my reading, there wasn't much of a recognition of how you would create an environment to sustain that. So I'm going to guess that some of those alums are actually going to begin to produce material around how to create a learning culture that, that supports that kind of teaching, and that there should begin to become sort of much richer material around the larger ability to move the system. Does uh, that seem like it's sensible? Well, yes. I, I mean, that is happening. It is not this book's purpose. This book is for, uh, for teachers. I mean, there's a you know, the backstory here is this book is our evolving hypothesis about what our most effective teachers are doing. And it's the first thing our new teachers read as the, the launching pad for our, our training. And this, this has been evolving for a decade. It's just we have, have published it in this way at this time for various reasons. Um, this, it's outside the scope of this particular book to answer that question, but there is, we've, my the, the founder of Teach for America, Wendy Kopp, has just completed a book where she has been 
in a sense doing similar asking similar questions of highly effective leaders on campuses, districts, and at the policy level of what what is at the foundation of the growing number of proof points out there. And I think there are patterns. I, I, you know, I don't think they're hugely surprising, but these schools where you have, you know, there's there. I, I was recently in the Rio Grande Valley where I taught many, many years ago, and there's a network of schools called the Idea Academies. I don't know if anyone's familiar with these, but you know, these are these are children, many of them living in poverty that I think many people would would not recognize as the United States of America, um, and yet. All of the students coming out of those schools are being accepted to colleges and universities where their colleagues from those neighborhoods are not. And they're, they're, they're creating an entire environment that is, is showing the power of education in the face of poverty that, that I think is a model for all of us. And, and all these places you can see patterns. There's a strong leader with a strong vision who's creating a a welcoming culture of achievement for the adults and the students who's taking who's embracing and accountability and, and taking management seriously in an education context. You know, this the old model of one principal who is sort of nominally accountable for a hundred teachers' success doesn't make sense uh, when what we're doing is so hard and what we need to have is is a system of mentors, a kind of pyramid system of veterans who are helping newer teachers and more veterans helping less veteran teachers so that that they're, we are all purposely surrounded by colleagues and systems that are supporting our work. I think you're finding that. And I, I think those patterns aren't surprising. It's just that they are they are the hard work of creating effective organizations and you know, I think one important lesson from all of those is that none of these places is found. There is no silver bullet here. It's not a particular curriculum. It's not that the school days are longer. It is that these leaders are doing the same things that are necessary for creating an effective organization in any context, but they're doing it in a school. So I haven't been entirely fair to you because I've treated you both as the author of this book and as a representative of Teach for America. So I didn't mean to put you in an awkward position. Um, we're going to move to Q&A, but I want to give you the chance to describe two other things that I really appreciated about the book. One was your approach to teacher development, and the second was your defining, measuring, and tracking student learning. As you begin to talk about those a little, I'm going to encourage people to put questions in the chat, and I'll gather them so we can ask them. Okay, can, can, sorry, can you repeat those two one more time? Sure. So the first is uh, your approach to teacher development. And I think you've covered that for the most part. Was there anything you wanted to add to that? Um, I, yeah, I guess I would, I would, well, you know, it's, it, there's our, our, what we are learning about what changes adults' behavior to, Embody the most effective methods that we're finding is experience and reflection on that experience. Um, our, our, our entire model is, is built on that. That's why we, you know, in our summer training program, we don't have a student teaching model. We have a, a collaborative teaching model where our our teachers 
are in their, the second week of training, they are up in front of a group of students responsible for those students learning. They're, they're in a collaborative and there's three layers of veterans and coaches at the back of the room guiding them. But, but that's what we're finding is, is accelerating teachers' progress. I do want to say, of course, we're, not all of our teachers are highly effective. And you know, my, I have the wonderful job of studying the most effective, but we have a lot of teachers struggling, just I think like other programs do. I think on mass our teachers are doing very well, but we have a long way to go. So I, I don't know, you know I, I know that we're going to continue to evolve that as we're learning which interventions are having the most impact on, on our students' learning in the end. It, it is significant, I think, to talk about selection just for a minute. The fact that we have, we had 46,000 applicants last year. We had 12% of the senior classes of the Ivy League. We had over 5% of the senior classes of 130 colleges and universities across the country apply to us. And we only accepted, I don't know exactly, something like 1 in 9, 1 in 10 of the applicants. Um, and our, our selection model is going through the same learning loop that we're going through on the teacher actions. That is, we, we have our rubric of what we believe will predict student success. We select people on it. At the end of the year, when we know who has proven more and less effective, we go back and pull those selection files to see what was more and less predictive than we thought. And this, team, this team is amazing. They're actually running regression analyses on all of the things that we can see in people before they start to figure out what what will we bet on? What, what's most predictive? And, and that selection model keeps evolving. There's some fascinating findings, I think, in, in that realm. But all of that, all of that added together, is we're, we're still not there. You know, I, I think we just have a lot of work to do as good as I am about the progress we made. But I think what's important to, to identify there is the degree to which you're doing and trying to do really disciplined study of that. Right, you're trying to to measure success and trying to figure it out, and 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 being very disciplined about it. I, I mean, I, I think that's what we aspire to, and I, I, but I think that that is what any effective organization should be doing. Right, is saying, we're, here's what we're aiming to do. Let's let's study our examples of success, and let's keep track of all the inputs we had on those examples of success so we know how to get more of them. That's, that's in essence what we're, the project, the hard project before us. So I'm really anxious to see sort of how this uh, ends up evolving, and I'm really appreciative of the chance to, um, number one, to have read the book, and then number two, to talk to you. If you have a question for Stephen, you can raise your hand by clicking on the hand of the green up arrow, or you can place your question in the chat. Alice, I wasn't quite sure what your questions are, so I'm going to encourage you to raise your hand and take the microphone, because it looks like you have a couple. And then Belle Gallagher as well. Okay, and actually Jackie's raised, Jackie, did you raise your hand? Because I'm glad to give you the mic if you'd like. And Alice, I don't know if you have a microphone, but I can. Uh, so uh, um, Alice, go ahead and, and uh, I guess one of her questions was, what are the leadership supports that we all need, new, old, and TFA? So that may be a little vague, Alice. Um, so I'm going to ask you to try and, um, and ask a question that I can pass on to Steve if you don't have the mic. Uh, Bell, do you have a microphone? Can we put you on the microphone? 
while we're waiting for Bill to answer. Okay, Alice says, did you study non-Teach for America teachers? No, no. Our, we have been studying our teachers in our context. I think that's an important point. That's, that's where our, our work has been. And, and, and that actually makes, that absolutely makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm wondering, Alice, if you're concerned that uh, by focusing on the Teacher America teachers, it's in some way not giving credit to other teachers. And my guess is that that's not their intention at all. Okay, Jackie says, it sounds like a lot of the evidence that you have provided is anecdotal and it's research that you have done on yourself, TFA about TFA. What empirical research can you share in particular studies that have come from outside institutions or researchers? Sure. Um, there, there are many. I, I, you know, I won't, I guess I'll refer people Encourage people to take uh, take a look at. There's a number of big ones that have come out recently. Mathematica did a study. This is now three or four years old. That was that looked both at value-added data, so looking at where students were at the beginning of the year and the end of the year, and had random assignment of students. So that that is sort of the gold standard for us. Um, and it was it was completely external. And found that that students in our teachers' classroom were making more progress in both reading and math in a year than would typically be ex expected, and that our especially in math, our, our students were getting significantly greater gains in math than students of other teachers, even certified and veteran teachers. Um, there was a more recent study, just recently, Urban Institute Calder did that was basically the same findings that uh, on average. Students in our teachers' classrooms were outperforming other groups of teachers, including sort of more traditionally certified and more veteran teachers. Those, those are two that are the most rigorous. Um, I, I, mean, I would make a plea to those of you, whether you're research-minded or not, there are lots and lots of studies out there. Um, I take the ones with, with strong methodology very, very seriously. I think we all do. There are some studies that are not strong methodology. Education Next, I, I think, did a great service recently when they they put all the studies in a line and graded them on their methodology. From our perspective, studies that are based only on end-of-year assessments don't make much sense because we're going into a school asking to teach the students that are farthest behind. So, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know what to make of those studies when our teachers students are not as far as they may be in other schools or other classes because our students started farther behind. We want to know how far have we moved. Um, the other thing that you know, is important is the random assignment of students, which is, no, is very, very difficult in districts. But there is a there is de facto both overt and covert tracking of students happening all over the place. And um, the so comparing one class to another, I mean, we know this there's a problem with all of our use of data on evaluation and all the different ways we're using it. But those are all those are all challenges. But uh, first and foremost, I guess I would the most recent studies I'd suggest and, and you know there's I think good results and less good results in them for us. But generally, I think they're pretty positive. Mathematica and the Urban Institute studies were independent. 
So there was very balanced material on the web about this, and I think uh, you know, sort of the most thoughtful response I saw was there may not be full agreement as to whether or not the Teacher America teachers are more effective, but that they are as effective should tell us something. Um, I will say that from my perspective, um, when when the book when you, in the book at the beginning of the book you talk about a teacher being able to do multiple years more. Um, advancement in a single year than another teacher. It, it, it led me a little bit in a false direction to expect higher results than seem to actually be shown. Well, let, let, let me be clear that this book is not about all of our teachers. You know, this book is about our most effective teachers. We're carving out and studying those teachers who are getting two, three, four years worth of growth and comparing them to our middle of the road teachers who average out, you know, these numbers, you know, this, this crowd knows there's a thousand asterisks to put on these numbers, but sort of between the one and one and a half year progress um, is, is where the median line is. So, so this, this, book, you know, this book is not the same as the Mathematics Study or Urban Institute Study, which is looking at the average across these teachers. Terrific. We have just a couple of minutes left. If you have a question uh, for Stephen, feel free to raise your hand. Um, Bell, um, if you want to ask a direct question in the chat, please feel free to do so. Um, Kellen says, I came into the discussion late. I worked for Teach for America over this past summer and currently work as a campus campaign coordinator. From what I have gathered about TFA's history, the TAL model you present in your book is very close to the focus Teach for America has emphasized all along. What does this book bring to effectiveness in the TFA model that wasn't there before? <laughs> that's that's um, the sort of inside baseball question there. But we this there was a huge debate about whether to publish this as a book because it has always been an evolving hypothesis. And I, I deeply believe that a rubric has to only be a best hypothesis that once you get the data back, you know, you're going to find things are more and less predictive than you thought. Um, this, this has evolved. Uh, we, we had something, we first started talking about a teaching as leadership framework in the early 2000s, but there were only four principles at the time. We kept studying. We added a couple. It, you know, this gets into such detail that I don't think anyone wants to hear it. But the way we talk about these things has evolved as we've we've seen different hypotheses come and go. Um, you know, very brief example. Just three years ago, one of the principles we called constant learning. We the, our working hypothesis was that our most effective teachers are those that are constantly learning. As we studied that hypothesis, we found a number of our most struggling teachers who were also always learning another skill, always reading another book, always going to another workshop. So, so we had to come up with something, what's distinguishing these teachers? And we now call this continuously increasing effectiveness because we found that there really is, there are a wider range of effectiveness among teachers who are constant learners. But the most effective teachers are those that are experimenting with the application of that learning in their classroom. They're always changing. They're like scientists in a laboratory who are turning knobs. They're changing their reading workshop to see if this is going to be better. Their systems don't sit still because they're trying to squeeze more learning time out of them. So we, we change that principle. So that's, that's the sort of the thing 
that that you would see if you looked at this over the last 10 years it's evolved. Since we published the book, there are a number of places that are outdated already. That will, the next version will change because every year when we get a new crop of teachers who are getting these sort of results, we go back, we analyze them on what we thought was predictive. Things continue to move and adjust. So Stephen, we're at the top of the hour. I told you these hours go by so fast. And you had all those great slides that we didn't get to see. I really apologize for that. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your taking on not just the description of the book, but a little bit of the sort of larger perspective of Teach for America. It was very useful to me, and I appreciate it, especially because uh, Teach for America does get referenced uh, often um, by others in a, a somewhat negative way. And I, and I felt a much greater appreciation for the organization uh, after reading the book. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central for uh, uh, providing me with employment. And here's our upcoming schedule. Stephen, any last words? No, just thank you to everyone. I, I would encourage you, anyone who wants to know more, or those of you who are teachers in the classroom, I think that this, this teachingisleadership.org website, which is available to anybody, that is gathering annotated videos of teachers performing the actions that predict student learning at every level of proficiency is we are getting fantastic traction with our teachers and using that as a resource to, to push each of us to become better in the classroom. And I would encourage anyone to take a look at that and see if they can find it useful. It's, it's there. And that sounds very much to me like what Tony Wagner advocates. I don't know if you know Tony from Harvard, but if you haven't made that connection, let me make it for you and send me an email and I'll make an introduction. Okay, thanks again, Stephen. I'm clapping for you. Really appreciate your coming on. We like to let our guests go right at the top of the hour so that you've committed to an hour and we don't keep you longer. But thanks again so much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Great discussion. Very interesting. I know I'm going to have to go back and read through the chat. If you want to save the chat, you can go up to File, Save. And you can save the chat conversation in a TXT file. And I will also um, be posting the recording, the full Illuminate recording up later tonight uh, at futureofeducation.com. Uh, in order to do so, though, everybody has to leave the room. But um, really appreciate your being here tonight. And I hope you have a great evening or day, depending on where you are. So Dana, go to futureofeducation.com for that list to the right. Absolutely. Take care, everybody.